Well, I'm, I'm uh, very, very happy to be with you tonight. Very privileged and honored to be with you tonight. I really am. Uh, I have very high regard for Pastor Mike. I love you. You know that. I enjoyed seeing Mike every time I saw him at Clearwater. I won't be seeing him at Clearwater anymore. <laughs> I won't be seeing anybody at Clearwater anymore, for that matter. Um, and tell you what, I appreciate your prayers in, in that respect. Um, I, I suppose you know somewhat <clears throat> of the story there. I mean, I taught there 38 years of my life, you guys. 38 years of my life. And, you know, this is, this is the first time in like 47 years that I haven't gone off to college to teach in the fall. Um, tough. And I'll tell you what I did on Monday. You'll get a kick out of this maybe. On Monday, this past Monday, I registered myself. Um, before semesters begin, all the students have to register for classes. And because I'm sort of an unemployed retired guy now and not teaching like I have done for so many years, it's very important to me that I be using my time wisely and to the best advantage, spiritually speaking. And it's very, very easy when you don't have goals in mind and everything to really let time slip away. And uh, I can really, I can be a world-class putterer. I'm serious. <laughs> I mean, really. I can go from one room to the other and see something and get started on something else that I didn't even come into the room for. So I registered and wrote out my whole schedule of things that I'm doing. You might wonder, what in the world is he doing? Well, I have all kinds of things on there, everything from uh, specific times to be reading. I'm going to be taking a course from uh, some uh, DVDs that I have from uh, Ligonier Ministries, uh, just taking it myself. Uh, I'm going to have certain hours for sermon preparation, certain hours for course preparation. You might say, why are you doing course preparation if you're not teaching anymore? You guys know I will be here in November to teach a mini course on a Friday and Saturday. And I'm really excited about that. I really am. I have some specific time to work on calligraphy and, and other things. So I wrote out my schedule and uh, I have that schedule before me now. I wrote it out Monday, but Monday was a holiday, right? So I didn't follow it for Monday. Tuesday was a sick day. <laughs> I was fighting a cold. It was a legitimate sick day. So I haven't really gotten into the schedule to see how it works for a whole week yet. Uh, I actually have seniority, so I can kind of jockey my schedule around a little bit here. But I really want to be focused. I really want to be focused on my schedule. Well... Let's see if I can get, I have a little technology going here. Let's see if I can have some pictures that I've brought with me and uh, prepared to go along with our message tonight. Uh, some of you in church know very well that one of the things that I love to do over the summers for many, many years is to go to camps. Uh, to me, going to camps over the summer combines some of the things that I love best in life. Things like being in the outdoors, being with young people, and most important of all, teaching the scriptures. And going to camps, I was able to combine those things. I mean, I, must, I first met some of you at camps. You were staff, you were uh, counselors, and all that. 
One of the most memorable camps that I ever went to was just a one-time thing. Other camps I've gone to for 20 years and 10 years and all that. The camp that I'm speaking of right now is a camp that I went to about 20 years ago. It was a camp in an area in, well, in between northern Minnesota and Canada. It's an area that is typified. I mean, that's a beautiful picture, I hope you think. Uh, I love canoeing, so it was a perfect area for me to go to. Uh, It's an area where, in addition to that, the, the pristine wilderness and silence of the wilderness is only broken by, you can see those little birds on the water, loons, and the haunting refrain or cry of the loon. It's a place called the Boundary Waters, for short, BWCA. BWCA, Boundary Waters Canoe Area. It's a canoe wilderness. There's camping in there, but it's wilderness camping. Would you believe I have a map with me tonight that I got when I was there. I was the head of one of the groups of this uh, church group of young people that went there. And we were given these maps. Each leader was given these maps because when we traveled around through the boundary waters, and you can see there's a whole bunch of islands and waterways and all. There are no signs in there, not even a one. There are no signs that tell you you've come to a camping area. The only way you'll know if you've come to a camping area is to see if you have matched up correctly a little red dot on this map. And you can go to that area and you'll find a place where you can pull a canoe up and you'll find a fire pit there, and a little ways further into the woods, there will be a box for necessary things to be done in the woods. But I loved having this map and trying to follow where we were going. I loved it. Matter of fact, I would trace out on the map each day our progress. We started way over here at the Canadian Ranger Station, and then we made our way through here and up here, and we ended up all the way over in this area. One day in particular is a day which comes to my mind. It is a day when we had to travel by canoe from a place called Fish Stake Narrows. It was the day when we were canoeing the furthest, so we would be more hours in the canoes that day. And it just so happened that it was the day when we had the worst weather of the whole week. Bad weather. Crossing a wind-driven and wave-tossed bay. Myself in a canoe, the canoe loaded down with stuff for the week, not only our personal possessions, but also the food that we would be eating all week. And two other persons in the canoe as well. Two young ladies who were both younger high school age, that was my group, the younger high school age, and may I say to you, and I say this in all kindness, they couldn't paddle worth a lick. (laughs) And I have written on that map, if, if you want to look at that map afterwards, I have written not only our route on there, but I wrote the word hard at one point on the map. And then a little bit further along, I wrote very hard. Very hard. The conditions were difficult. 
Now this picture, which I found online, is not a picture taken from the Boundary Waters, but it reminded me so much of that day. We didn't have so much of the rain, although I had a rain suit, but we had more waves than that, and we were heading into the wind and the waves for all the hours that we canoed. And as we labored at that, as I labored at that, trying to keep going and getting closer and closer to the goal where we would stay that night, two words kept going through my mind. Two words. Stephen, you will probably appreciate these words more than most tonight. Siopa pepimosa. Siopa pepimosa. They are the Greek words that we'll encounter a little bit later on in our study tonight that are translated, peace, be still. In those troubled waters, I thought many times of one of the accounts in Scripture when Jesus spoke those words to a stormy sea and it became flat. I would like you to open your Bible tonight with me to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. Now, while you're doing that, I have also brought with me tonight, and I have, I have it here for two purposes. I have a book with me tonight called A Harmony of the Gospels. Any of you familiar with A Harmony of the Gospels? In studying the Gospels, A Harmony of the Gospels is a tremendous tool. I would say an essential tool. I probably have five or six harmonies myself of, of different kinds. This is one that I used for many years in teaching a course in the life of Christ. And I've also recommended it for those of you who will be taking the mini course here for the Bible Institute. And what this does, this particular harmony, is that it takes passages where there is more than one account in the Gospels and it harmonizes them together, blends them together into one flowing narrative. I'll say more about that during the course. This particular passage that we're going to be looking at tonight in Mark chapter 4, in the latter part of the chapter, this is found in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke. John does not have an account of this particular incident. But Matthew and Mark and Luke. I'm going to focus our attention in Mark and call attention from time to time tonight, on some of the things that we would find if we were reading the accounts in Matthew and Luke as well. The passage begins in verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind And said to the sea, Peace, be still. Siopa, 
Pepimosa. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Beloved people, this is God's word that we have read. This is God's inspired word, which he has given to us that we might learn more about who he is and more about what he requires of us. So before we go any further tonight, let's bow our heads together and let's ask God to help us and instruct our hearts tonight. Heavenly Father, we have our our Bibles open tonight. We have just read from your word. Heavenly Father, I thank you that what we have read, we are absolutely assured, is the living word of the living and true God. These are the words of life. These words have been given to us to instruct us, to instruct us on how we should live and please you. So I pray, Father, that as we consider this passage tonight, that you would instruct our hearts. By your Holy Spirit, Father, I pray that you would take the truth of your word, make it clear to us, and Lord, open our eyes and ears and minds, and most of all, open our hearts, Lord, that we might embrace the truth of your word, having understood it, and then that we might be doers of the truth. Lord, we love you. We pray tonight now, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, looking at this passage of Scripture tonight, let me begin by making our first observation here on something which I would call the work-wearied Savior. When we started reading this passage, it says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. There's a couple observations that we need to make here before we get into the actual story that we have read here. We're told that it was evening. The day that had preceded the event that we're going to study tonight that took place on the Sea of Galilee, that day was a day that was filled with significant things. We don't have the time to look at them in detail, but if you'll flip back to the beginning of this chapter, Mark chapter 4, these are the words that we read there. Again, he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land and he was teaching them many things in parables. The day was filled with Jesus speaking to the multitude, speaking to them very specifically about parables. Parables, earthly stories 
that Jesus gave to reveal spiritual truth in a, in a way that it could be grasped and understood. And, and may I just say to you that when, when Jesus, and the, the picture that I have as the background here, is one artist's conception of Jesus in a boat, and that boat just a little ways from shore, and Jesus speaking back to the shore to the multitudes which have gathered on the shore. Apparently, that was thought on this occasion to be the very, way, the very best way that the multitudes could be reached. Jesus was in a floating pulpit or a floating podium, if you will. And it was like a, an amphitheater right in front of him with all the people. Now, if we went through Mark chapter 4 and Mark's account of all these parables, we would find quite a number of parables that are given here. Uh, Matthew chapter 13 is probably the greatest single chapter on uh, parables parallel to this passage. But if you'll sometime take the time to read that, there is a lot that Jesus taught. May I just say to you that although, if you're a student, teaching may seem to be the easiest thing in the world, no sweat, no expenditure of energy, that's wrong. That's wrong. It can be quite exhausting. And that's the first thing that I wanted to point out, but there's a second thing. And it's, it's just sort of hinted at in verse 34, which immediately precedes the passage that we read. It says, He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples he explained everything. Matthew, in his parallel account of this passage, tells us, that at the end of that day, Jesus went into a house to instruct his disciples privately. When the day had come to an end, he wasn't finished with his work. He worked some more, and the disciples were not always the easiest guys to teach, you know. They were not. So he taught his disciples in addition. May I add this point at the bottom, and it helps us to understand something from the passage that we read, I don't think it's surprising and I don't think it's an exaggeration either to think that when Jesus came to the end of this particular day of ministry, that he was exhausted. He was weary from his work. The work wearied Savior. You know, of course, that Jesus was the incarnate Son of God. In some of the accounts in Scripture, as Jesus came into this world through the virgin birth, we are told that his name would be called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus was 100% man. True? Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Not 50% man and 50% God, but 100% man and 100% God. Completely joined together, never to be separated. When Jesus took upon human flesh, he took on the kind of things that we experience. Now, we have to, we have to make it very, very careful to point out that as the author of Hebrews tells us, that 
he was tempted in all points like as we are. And what are the next words? Yet without sin. But I point this out to say that one of the things that Jesus experienced and must have experienced much during his earthly sojourn was the weariness that comes from doing his work. He was weary from his work at the end of this day. And he says to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Now, I think this needs a little bit of explanation. When Jesus says that, essentially what he is saying, and we put this together from some things that we read when we come to the beginning of chapter 5. It says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. So, Jesus is telling his disciples with the words, let us go over to the other side or across to the other side, that they're going to go from Capernaum to the land of the Gerasenes. You might say, that still doesn't register a whole lot with me, and I didn't see anybody start turning their pages to the maps in the back of your Bible, so I gave you a map on the screen here. That is the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> the sea of, I point to the back screen, that doesn't help you at all. That's the Sea of Galilee, right up here. Here's Capernaum, which is essentially on the western shore, all the way up to the north. Here is Jurassa right here. So essentially, well, let me help you out a little bit. When Jesus says, let us go across to the other side, he is essentially talking about going from the west to the east. He's going to go to the Gentile territory, which is called Decapolis, in the land of the Gerasenes. And so, we move from there to, I think, what must have been a peaceful scene as they began to do this. As they got into the boat, Jesus got into the boat with them, and, and, and I love it when we read here in verse 36, I'm leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Just as he was, meaning what? Weary, exhausted from his labor. And Jesus got into the boat with them. And I think if we put all the accounts together, we are told that some small boats were going along with them, but the sun is about to go down. It is evening, and they're going to make this crossing from the Capernaum area over to the land of the Gerasenes. Not surprising at all that when Jesus gets in the boat, he goes to the stern of the boat, laid his head on the cushion, and Jesus was soon fast asleep, exhausted from his labors. It's a pretty peaceful scene, I would say. Now, you probably can't read everything that's on the screen here, but this is the best picture that I have found to illustrate what we need to understand for the next part of this study. Once again, this is the Sea of Galilee right here, right here. The Jordan River is running down here, and it's going to run, run down, down, all the way about the floor level when it will come to it will empty into the Dead Sea. All right? The reason why I chose to show this slide was that this is a topographical map which is going to explain why the next thing happens. So let me tell you a little bit about this slide. No words are going to come up to it in addition to what we have here. 
The Sea of Galilee is located in the north part of what is called the Jordan Valley. This is the Jordan Valley right here. Now, can you see from that map why it's called a valley? Yeah. This valley here is more fully called the Jordan Rift Valley, and that valley really runs all the way down into the northern part of Africa. There is, some of you may be familiar with this name, there is a school in Africa, I'm not sure whether it's Kenya or wherever in Africa, called the Rift Valley Academy. That school, where many missionary children studied, is located really on the extension of that rift. So it's a significant rift. And if you've ever, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you can see how that the Jordan River is between ranges of mountains. Well, the Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long, about seven and a half miles wide, surrounded by hills, especially to the east. These hills to the east and to the west are about 2,000 feet above sea level. All the way up in the top part of this map, you may not realize this or not, and this may seem totally out of place for a map of the land of Jesus, there is a mountain with snow on the top, a snow-capped peak. That is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon can be seen from Galilee. If you're in Galilee, if you're standing at the southern shore of the Sea of Galilee, if the weather conditions are right, it can even be seen from the Dead Sea, which is about 60 miles to the south. Yes, Mount Hermon, or the Hermon Range, is, or the Hermon Ridge, is snow-capped. There is snow there. Mount Hermon is a little bit over 9,000 feet in elevation. And something which I haven't told you yet, but I'm about to tell you is this. Very interestingly, the surface of the Sea of Galilee is like 700 feet below sea level. That is below the level of the Mediterranean Sea. You can see there are tremendous elevation changes right here. Actually, the Dead Sea, about 60 miles to the south, is considered to be the lowest point on the face of the earth. The level, the sea level of the Dead Sea is about 1,300 feet below sea level. Well, why do we go into all these boring geographical or topographical details? Because these features create a situation that when currents of cool air move to the south from Mount Hermon, the snow-covered or snow-capped mountain, and the cool air comes down, especially from the surrounding steep hills, at times it would collide with the warm, moist air from the surface of the Sea of Galilee. And you know what would result? A storm on the lake. It would result in a wind-whipped lake. Now, I've been to Israel a couple times, and I've been on the Sea of Galilee a couple times. I was never there for a storm. I never saw a storm. I don't know how many tourists in Israel ever see a storm on the lake. Those who have probably have counted themselves uh, greatly blessed to have seen a storm like the disciples saw. But the surface of the Sea of Galilee, because of those conditions, can become like a churning cauldron. As a matter of fact, 
we have read from Mark's account, and in the Gospel of Mark and also in the Gospel of Luke, those authors use a particular Greek word, the word lilops, which means a whirlwind or a furious squall to describe what was going on on the lake. A whirlwind or a furious squall. The Gospel of Matthew uses the word seismos. We have such terms as seismograph and so on, which measures earthquakes. That word used by Matthew is the word that describes a great shaking with a sea heaving like an earthquake. Uh, These conditions were horrible, horrible. The winds were howling. The waves were breaking over the boat. They were in danger of sinking. That's a pretty, pretty difficult and scary situation. I know if I was out in a boat like that, I'd probably be horrified and probably very quickly be seasick, uh, both of those things. Some of these men, some of these disciples were seasoned fishermen, had spent many, many hours on the Sea of Galilee, were very familiar with it. But listen, these guys are very much concerned. I'd entitled the point here, the worry weakened disciples. What did that worry weaken? Did it weaken them physically? More important than that, it weakened something else that I'll withhold from telling you right now, but we'll encounter it very soon. These men, seasoned, experienced fishermen, are now in a struggle to stay afloat on the sea. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that they were no doubt terrified. I think we would have been terrified as well. I don't think it would have been just a matter that I have to keep paddling and get to the end of this, this particular canoe trip today. These guys were terrified. They were in conditions that were a whole lot worse than any conditions I was ever in. I think we see a little bit of a measure of their faith because while these disciples are struggling just to stay afloat, the Savior apparently is still sleeping. Can you imagine that? In the midst of these horrendous conditions, the Savior is still sleeping. And I think we can see a measure of faith in these disciples because these seasoned fishermen who knew the sea are now going to, well, they're going to turn to a man who was a carpenter and a teacher for help, not a seasoned fisherman. Uh, Of the pictures that I've gathered to illustrate these things tonight, I love finding pictures to illustrate the the passages in Scripture that, that I'm studying. This particular picture on the screen right now is a picture that was painted by one of the great masters. Uh, Many of you in the congregation tonight will probably recognize the name. Rembrandt. Rembrandt. Rembrandt Van Rijn. If you could read it, it's all the way down at the bottom of of this uh, particular slide. It says, Christ in the storm on the Sea of Galilee, painted 1633, by Rembrandt. Rembrandt has painted some great scenes from Scripture and has a collection of great sketches of Scripture scenes also. 
Rembrandt's picture here, I've added these words. They woke him up and they said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? Now, I'm sure the words were spoken with much greater passion by the disciples. I'm sure they shook him to wake him up. And I'm sure they had to shout so that their voices would be heard over the wind and so on. But those words, teacher, don't you care if we drown? Wow. Do you think that there is some criticism in these words? I do. I do. Criticism addressed to Jesus as if whatever happened to them really did not concern him. They were pretty far wrong on that one, weren't they? I mean, way far wrong on that one. This is another picture that I loved some years ago when I was searching for pictures to use in uh, my Life of Christ class at, at school to illustrate various things that we were studying. I encountered an artist named James Tussaud. And although it doesn't say it on this, this is an, a painting by James Tussaud, a French artist, who at one time was a painter of people from high society in France and England, and then had some sort of a spiritual experience, as I read about it. I'm not sure I would equate it with conversion, but something that really changed his focus. And from that point onward, he decided he was only going to paint scenes from Scripture. And he traveled to the Holy Land several times to do research on these scenes. And he has some of the most fascinating scenes. This is the way he depicts Christ in the boat, having been awakened from his sleep. And Christ now is going to say the two wonderful words that I've entitled this message tonight. And the two words are, and Stephen, there they are, in living Greek, siopa pephimoso, peace be still. More fully, when we read the account in Scripture tonight, Jesus rebuked the wind. He asserted his authority over the elements of nature. And then, in saying those two words, and this is the Greek of the words. Jesus perhaps spoke the words in Aramaic, but the Gospels, as we have them, are in Greek. That first word literally means, be quiet. Jesus is addressing the sea. Be quiet. And in the second word, be muzzled. Be still. And stay that way. Stephen, I don't know whether you guys have come to the perfect tense yet or not. But that second verb is a perfect tense, which indicates a past action with continuing results. Listen, see, settle down and stay that way, is what Jesus says. And to me, it was somewhat fascinating that Mark says, and there was a great calm. And what fascinates me is not necessarily those words, but a word that I might have expected to find Mark used, and that's a word that he has used 40-some times in his gospel, more times than that word is used in the whole rest of the New Testament, and it's the Greek word that is usually translated immediately. Whether Mark used that word or not, and the fact is that he didn't hear, Jesus spoke those words 
and immediately the sea became still. Immediately. There was not a gradual abating of the storm. As I was writing out my notes here, I was thinking of, uh, you know, the Grand Canyon Suite, a great piece of music, classical music that I love to listen to. But part of that Grand Canyon Suite is about a thunderstorm. And you can hear in the orchestral scores and everything the lightning off in the distance as a storm approaches, and then the storm howls with the lightning streaks and with the thunder and all that, and heavy rain, all of this portrayed orchestrally, not with any lightning and thunder and all that. And then gradually, all of that commotion gets quieter and quieter as the thunderstorm moves off in the distance. We're familiar with those things, aren't we? Living here in Florida, how a storm gradually Abates, listen, that's not the way it happened here. Jesus spoke those words, and there was a great calm. A great calm. I I want you to turn in your Bible backward to Psalm 107. Now, I would love to be able to say a lot about Psalm 107 tonight, but I just want to read to you some of the verses from Psalm 107. Beginning in verse 25. This is a fascinating, beginning in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still. And the waves of the sea were crushed or were hushed. I love that. I love that depiction there. Once again. These individuals in the psalm cried out to the Lord. The Lord answered them and stilled the sea. There's something else that we must see here. And what we must see next is what I've entitled the wonderment of the disciples. There are a couple observations that need to be made here. First observation is this. Jesus speaks to them and says that they are men of little faith. At the end of verse 40, it says, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? If we were to look at all three of the accounts, Matthew's and Luke's, in addition to Mark's, we would find that Jesus actually addresses this both before stilling the storm and after stilling the storm. That is, speaking of his disciples as men of little faith. Now, critics of Scripture will look at the fact that some of those will depict Jesus saying it before the storm and some after the storm and say, somebody's wrong here. You know, either did it before or after. Isn't it more simple to say we can harmonize those by concluding that Jesus said it both before he stilled the storm and afterward? Men of little 
faith. The second observation is this. Jesus said that they were men who were still afraid. Now, in Mark's account here, this is after the storm has been calmed. The sea is flat. The wind is not whipping. He says that they are still afraid. A third observation here is this. Jesus is not only very powerful, which he gave clear evidence of by stilling the storm, He's also very loving because although these men were deserving of a sharp rebuke from the Lord Jesus, especially for saying, don't you care that we're perishing? Rather than rebuking them, Jesus lovingly deals with them, patiently deals with them. And then at the very end of the account, as Mark gives it here, verse 41 They were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They were men who saw that Jesus was greater by far than they had previously imagined. Before, if we read the gospel accounts up to this point, what have they seen in Jesus? They have seen Jesus as one who has manifested his authority over audiences as a teacher. Men, uh, they have seen Jesus as one who has exercised his authority over sickness, and there have been a number of miracles that have occurred. They've even seen that Jesus has exercised his authority over the demons, especially we see that in Mark's gospel. And now they see something that they have not seen before. Jesus exercises his authority over even the wind and the waves, the elements of nature. Well, what is that? What is that? I think I heard somebody say It's a mirror. It's a mirror. Why did I just put a mirror up there? What in the world does that have to do with what we're studying here? We flip over in your Bible to the book of James for a moment. The book of James. Chapter 1 and verse 22. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So here's where I want us to conclude tonight. Having looked in the mirror, what now? James likens looking into the scriptures as looking into a mirror. When we look into a mirror, we see a reflection of ourselves. We see a reflection of ourselves as to what we're really like. And The point that James makes is that we see a reflection of ourselves in the mirror and we see adjustments that need to be made. Maybe we need to wash our face. Maybe we need to comb our hair, some of us. 
Maybe there are other things that we need to do. And James says, that's the way it must be when we look into Scripture. We have to decide, what does God want me to do, having looked into his word? How am I going to live my life tomorrow and in the days ahead? And there are a couple observations, just briefly, that I think we can make here. The first one is very simply this. Storms can come up suddenly. Now, I don't mean storms on the horizon. I don't mean now the storm on the Sea of Galilee. I mean storms that come into our lives. Do you know what I'm talking about with respect to that? Storms that come into our lives are so many and so different, aren't they? Sometimes storms that come into our lives come into our lives in the form of a sickness. Uh, Maybe in this congregation there's somebody here or perhaps more than one person who is dealing with a health issue and you heard the doctor say the word cancer. That was not just a little storm. That was a huge storm. That was a huge storm. That was unsettling to you. That was disquieting to you. Uh, Maybe some of you have had financial setbacks or even collapses. That can be like a storm, a major storm in your life. Really upsetting things. Maybe it's personal issues. Maybe it's family issues. All kinds of things. You know, for me, one of the big issues is a storm that came up suddenly on June the 5th. I mean, I have that day down. When I went with my colleagues to sit in a room and to hear an announcement made, and I had no clue in the world what the announcement was going to be. The announcement was that in three weeks, this college is closing. Did that throw me into into a storm? It did. It really did. Storms can come up suddenly. Suddenly. Now, we live in basically flatland Florida. And we can see storms come for a pretty long distance. We can. Various other places, there are all kinds of hills and mountains that can sometimes hide the storms until they're ready to break right on you. I can remember a time years ago going to, going to camp with a lakeside group, and I know this church went with lakeside's group uh, up to the same place where I've been with them four or five times, and we went rafting on the Nantahala River right there. And on that particular year that we went rafting on the Nantahala River, uh, so I'm talking without exaggeration, severe weather came on us just before we were finished that particular rafting trip that day. I mean severe weather. Uh, God protected us so that no one was hurt, but electricity was knocked out of that whole area. Trees came down and highways were closed and all that kind of stuff. Hail came down, wind blew and all. That came up suddenly because mountains all around the Smoky Mountains made it impossible to see until it was about to break on us. Storms like that can happen in your life. What do you do when a storm like that happens? What do you do? Well, a second point that I want to make here is that 
Jesus always cares. Is that a right statement? Yeah, it is. Jesus always cares. You know, as much as I read the scripture and have read it over and over and prepared by writing the notes and all those kind of things, I'm still gripped by that saying, that saying of the disciples. Master, don't you care that we're perishing? Wow. You might say, how could they ever say something like that? But have you ever said anything like that? Have I ever said anything like that? In, in my situation, Lord, don't you care? Don't you care that this is what I love to do and now I'm not doing it? You know, we better realize that Jesus always cares. Our human emotions vary, I mean, like the waves on a sea. They do. They're up, they're down, they're everywhere. But because Jesus cares, because Jesus always cares, he will always do what is best for us. Which includes, sometimes, he will send storms. Why does he send storms? Do you think Jesus was in control of the storm that fell on the disciples on the Sea of Galilee? Yeah, he was. Of course he was. He rides upon the storm. He does. Why did he send that storm to them? Why does he send storms in life to us? Because there's something that he wants to do in our lives. He wants to make us more like Christ. He wants to sanctify us more, make us more holy. He does. He wants our testimony to shine more brightly in front of the people that we work with or the people that we meet. He does. You know, isn't it great that Peter says that we can cast all our cares on him for what reason? Because he cares for us. That's why. Yeah. Let me quickly add a third point here. When Jesus is with us, we are in the safest spot possible. Let me put that a little differently and and relate it to the passage of Scripture that we're looking at and how that applies to my life. I would rather be in the middle of a storm-tossed sea if Jesus was in the boat with me than to be firmly planted on terra firma and Jesus not be there. We are better off in the boat, aren't we? We really are. One last thing. The disciples realize this, and it's their words at the close of these accounts in Scripture. Who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. Has Jesus done great things for us? Surely, surely. If we took the time tonight for all of us to share the great things that God has done for us, we'd be here a pretty long time, wouldn't we? Yeah. Maybe we'd be here a pretty long time and only gone through three people, you know? He has done great things for us, for all of us. Let me tell you, he can do even greater. (laughs) And he will. He will. The longer we go through life, the more and more we will learn about Jesus. I remember in the year 1990 when my dad passed away. I learned 
depths of what Jesus meant to me through that experience that I had not experienced before. I learned more about the height and depth and length and breadth of the love of Christ, but I realize also that it passes knowledge. I can't plumb the depths of it completely, but I'll learn more about it. I will. We grow in our knowledge of Christ primarily from His Word. When we focus on the Word of God, I mean, you might say, I've read the Word of God through a dozen times. Praise God. Do it again. Do it again. Never tire of your study of Scripture. Because in growing in your knowledge of Him, that should cause your faith to grow. Could it be said of any of us tonight, O ye of little faith? You know, I think it can be said of all of us, can't it? There's not a person in this room, no matter how much of a seasoned saint you may be or how many decades you've walked with the Lord, there's nobody here tonight who possesses a perfect faith or a fully matured faith. Our faith is flawed for all of us. Our faith needs to grow. Our faith grows as we read, as we study, as we learn and practice what the Word of God tells us. It does. Guys, I I don't have any idea what storms you might be going through in your life, whether right now or tomorrow or in the week or month to come. But I know this. There's a whole lot of very significant spiritual truth that comes right out of this account of Jesus being with the disciples in the boat, sleeping in the boat, and rebuking the wind and the sea. So may God help us. May God bless us with an ever-growing faith, even through the trials and the storms. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you tonight for your word. and It is our delight, Lord, to open your word, to read your word, to study your word. And I pray that we won't be content with just learning facts and just getting more familiar with the stories. But Lord, may we cause the may may we rejoice that it is your desire that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly in all wisdom, so that we might walk in a manner that pleases you. Bless every one of these people who are here tonight. Lord, I thank you for them. I thank you for their desire to be in your house on your day. Thank you for their love for your word. And I pray that you would bless their lives richly. May Christ be seen in them clearly and plainly. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.